We will continue First Thessalonians today. Uh, please open to First Thessalonians chapter three. We'll be reading the whole chapter, and we'll be finishing it today. And Lord willing, next week we'll start on Paul's instructions to them. But today we will see and rejoice in the report Timothy has brought back about the faith of the Thessalonians and their situation and the result of his ministry to them. You remember Paul was quite distressed about having to leave them shortly after arriving there without even finishing the basic teachings. And in this letter he's writing to them, Timothy has gone back to help fulfill fill some of that, and this letter will fill the rest of what's lacking in the instruction they received. So we'll look at Paul's rejoicing in having gotten a good message, a good report after he had been so distressed about what was happening to them and in his absence because he had to leave them in the work unfinished. Well, let us read chapter 3. And actually, we'll start at chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it, no longer I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come from us, come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake, for our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct you, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that we may, he may establish your hearts blameless 
in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the report of encouragement that's come from Timothy back to Paul and his companions. And pray, Lord, that as we read through this and think about it and study it, that you would fill our hearts with the same joy that Paul had and fill our hearts, Lord, to do the things that had brought Paul such joy that the Thessalonians were doing them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so starting in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy has brought back good news both about their faith and love and about their remembrance of Paul and his companions. This good news being brought back was very important because persecution of the new church in Thessalonica had been fierce. Unbelieving Jews, jealous of the gospel's success amongst the Jews of the synagogue and amongst the devout Greeks and amongst the leading women. They had formed a mob. Remember, a mob from the rabble of the city, or as the King James put it, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Uh, love the poetic way they phrase that. But they brought a, rob, a mob together, the Jews had, to attack the believers. And they were looking for Paul and Silas especially. When they could not find them, we read in Acts 17, verse 6 and 7, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. Apparently they were staying at Jason's house and using that as their base of operations. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now it's shocking, but the Jews really did drag their fellow Jews before the pagan officials and accused them of treason against Rome as a means of hindering the gospel. Now, if you think about it, the Jews rejected Roman authority. The Jews had rebelled before and would rebel again against Rome. And in fact, Jerusalem would be destroyed because of their rebellion. And yet they want to use the Roman pagan authorities to help them suppress Christ. It's often an attack against the church that following Christ as Lord makes you an enemy of the state because particularly in communism and socialism, but really in all non-Christian worldly powers, the state tends to set itself up as God, as the final and ultimate authority. And to say there is an authority above them is considered to be rebellion against them and rejection of them. And so throughout history, it's brought persecution to the Christian church, saying that there is another Lord, there is a God, a true God, who has authority over the state. And so if you're thinking about why, I just told you why, but God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, Colossians 1.3. We're not part of their kingdom anymore. That's the second reason. Not only do we set a king above them, but we are not in their kingdom in truth. We are in the kingdom of the Lord, and they are in the kingdom of the devil. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus' words in John 15, 19. The governments of the world hate and oppose the church because the church is part of an enemy kingdom. The kingdom of God, not the kingdom of their God, Satan. So with that attitude, the church was under attack in Thessalonica. And Paul and Silas, the lightning rods, worsening the persecution there, ended up having to leave the city and move on to the next city. And this caused both parties, the Thessalonian believers and Paul and company, quite a bit of distress. Especially Paul, who was very distressed, and he says, you know, when I could bear it no longer, we read in for Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, when I could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left alone in Athens and sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So the purpose there was to finish, in part, the work that was left undone, because Paul was driven out of the city. Paul was to, or Timothy was to help them become established in their faith. You can imagine, you know, what we know of God. It would take more than a few days to really understand the teaching about Christ particularly if you have no background in the Old Testament, as the Gentiles had none. And so he really wanted to stay longer and teach, and now Timothy has gone to help establish them and exhort them. And Timothy will bring back good news about their faith, about their love, and about their attitude towards Paul, their longing to see them. Now, it's interesting to note here, brought back the good news is actually the word for teach or preach or proclaim the good news. It's the same one used for sharing the gospel. Uh, it's used differently here, and this is the only place Paul uses it this way. But it's of that level of importance in his mind. It is the great news, not as great as the coming of Jesus, but there. Their faith was such a great news to him that he uses the same words. So he had brought back good news about their faith. That was the purpose Timothy was sent for, to establish and exhort them in their faith. We saw that in verse 2. In verse 5, he writes, for this reason, well, we just read that as well. I could, when I could no longer bear it, I sent to learn of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 5, the devil and his followers, his minions, want to crush the faith of the Christians. They want to hinder the spread of the gospel. Remember we read that before in chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul was so concerned for their faith and was relieved by the report he received from Timothy. 
what was in the report. <clears throat> I'm sure a report of the ministry and the teaching and their reception of it, but also he brought back a report about the love they had. Jesus said that you'll know they're my disciples by their love. Faith and love were intricately linked together, especially in 1 John. Those who have faith are born of God, children of God, and naturally will love the rest of the children of God. 1 John chapter 5 summarizes that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So you can see the, the intricate interconnections here. Faith, love, obedience, they all get linked together and are interdependent upon each other. And they're, they're a witness for each other. We read in First John, we believe in Jesus, <clears throat> then we will love the Father. Verse 1 of chapter 5 we just read. If we believe, we love God. If we love God, we love those who are born of God. That is, the other believers. Also in verse 1, and likewise, the way we know that we love the brothers is by loving God and keeping his commandments. That's verse 2. And it's not burdensome. It's natural. When we have a new heart, we have a new attitude, love for the brothers will naturally flow out of that. And that is an evidence. Right? Brotherly love is an evidence of faith. It's an encouragement to Paul that their faith is testified to by their love. Timothy also brought back good news concerning their attitude towards Paul towards Paul's companion, towards their ministry. And that was equally important. Another evidence of love that had been given was their, their attitude towards him. The enemy presumably was talking wicked nonsense against them, just like Diotrephes in 3 John 10. And Paul seems to be worried that their, their propaganda and their heretical teachings, their scorn for him, might have poisoned the hearts poisoned the well of the Christian church in Thessalonica. Potentially, it could really hinder the spread of the gospel. These people were persecuting them. You follow Christ, it's because Christ is evil and we must punish you. You follow Christ, you're a fool because we have the Old Testament and we don't follow the, the Messiah. Uh, you follow Paul, who's nothing. And the gospel could be hindered. So Paul was delighted to learn that they remembered him kindly. The word translated kindly there can mean pleasant or useful or excellent or upright or honorable. So their, their memories and their thoughts of Paul were that he was an honorable person preaching the message of God for them. And you remember they had received it not as the words of a man, but as it really is, the word of God. And so Paul, while he may have been worried, is now delighted to learn this. 
The thoughts of him were honorable, and more than that, the Thessalonians strongly desired to see him again, to have him minister to them more directly once again. And that was a relief to him. He wanted to minister there. He wanted to fulfill his duty to, to teach them the whole counsel of God, to establish the church, to establish the faith, to enrich their hearts in those things. And so they wanted that as well. And he was delighted. After ministering to them, Timothy brought back that good report of their faith. Their apostle, who had first ministered to them, their founding pastor, was comforted through their faith, it says. Paul was comforted not just in his distress, but in their distress. And that comfort came through their faith. It wouldn't have been easy for Paul to learn from Timothy about the persecution that was still ongoing in Thessalonica. It would have added to his sorrows that his spiritual children were suffering for the faith in that they weren't, you know, they weren't yet fully established. They weren't yet fully mature. They were babes in Christ and they're being persecuted. How are they going to be able to handle this? How unbearable a burden that would be to Paul. When it, remember when he listed all the things he had suffered in 2 Corinthians 11, he concluded And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me, my anxiety for all the churches, all the churches that were mature. And this is an immature one. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. Paul was very distressed about their persecutions, but he was not one to give up. He was not one to become discouraged. And that's where we start off here in verse 7. For this reason. Now note the word this is singular. He's just given three things, but he only says one here. He's summing up their faith, their love, and their positive attitude towards him as a singular reason, their faith. Faith is proven by their deep love for one another. You don't love God's people And you're not a believer. If you're a believer, you will love God's people. Seeing that love for each other encouraged him that God had really changed their hearts and that they were really following him and obeying the commandment to love one another. In the same way, their attitude towards Paul and his ministry, and as we just talked about in chapter 2, verse 13, his ministry of the word, receiving it as God's word and receiving Paul really as God's messenger and wanting to see Paul again. This also brought him considerable encouragement, but it was also a witness for their faith. They did not receive strange teachings from Paul because it appealed to them, because he tickled their ears and they were happy to hear it. He's not a peddler of God's word. He preached the things that they don't want to hear. And he didn't stop that. Uh, we'll be talking about that in Bible study after lunch. But you know, think of him in Athens. He's talking about God and about the gospel and about the resurrection, and they mock. When he goes to the Areopagus, does he say, well, they mocked that, so I'll, I'll teach something else? No, he teaches it more boldly. 
the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, eternal life. He wasn't one to become discouraged and he wasn't going to give up. He wanted to continue on teaching them. Their faith was for Paul, the apostle, the pastor, the evangelist, their faith was his greatest joy in all of his toilsome labors. You know, if we label fruitlessly, it's hard. How many people want to have Jeremiah's ministry? You know, we don't want that. Paul probably didn't want that either. He would do whatever God gave him to do, but he took great joy in seeing that there was fruit, that there was salvation brought to these people. He was willing to set aside all of his hopes, all of his dreams, all of his life, even his safety, if by some means he might save some people. He says that in 1 Corinthians 9, and I want to read that. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under law I became as one under law, though to myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's not talking about antinomianism here, not discarding the law. He's talking about not being under the ceremonial law. The, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share it with them, share with them in its blessings. First Corinthians nine, nineteen through twenty three. Paul really had a great hope for their salvation, and he was willing to suffer the loss of all things. And we've talked about what he lost before. Remember, he was a leading Jew, leader in the sect, would eventually rise rising faster than those around him, probably would eventually become a rabbi and a leader and have his own sect and his own followers who would take care of him, great prestige and power. He might even have seen one day he could sit on the Sanhedrin. But he gave that all up. That was not what was important. He set that all aside in the hopes of the gospel and of bringing the gospel to God's people around the world. Like the Apostle John, and really any pastor would say, and I think any pastor of God's flock would say, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified of your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Third John 3 and 4. Uh, there's great joy to a minister to see the people they minister to walking in the truth to see their lives transformed, to see them going, aha, and changing their path. And it doesn't stop with salvation. It goes on throughout the entire life of a believer. We've never achieved perfection. There are things we are ignorant of, things we sin in, things we choose to sin in. And for them, to see them walking according to God's word, to see them changing their life, 
was the great confidence, the great reward they had for their labor. They knew they would get another reward in heaven, but it's nice to have a little bit here now. Now, We don't want to live like Jeremiah, weeping for the people who wouldn't repent and wouldn't turn to God. We want to see them repenting and we want to see them turning. And so Paul had in verse 9, 8 and 9, thanksgiving and rejoicing because of their not just their faith, but of their standing fast in the Lord. The idea of standing fast is being immovable, not just standing, but standing against the tide, standing against the storm, against the persecution, and not wavering from their faith and their following of Jesus. In his concluding remarks to the Corinthians, Paul exhorts them in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, as opposed to babies, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Again, faith and love, they're hand in hand here. If anyone says, I love God, which means I have faith, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, 1 John 4.20. For the Thessalonians, their love was a proof of their faith. Their true faith, their saving faith, was the source of their love. Everyone who believes in Jesus Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 1 John 5, 1. God's children will love God's children. That's a message that keeps coming clear, not just in John, but in Paul. Paul's thankfulness for them standing firm in the faith was because standing firm in the face of persecution is really a testimony for the faith. Testimony that their faith is real, that there's real saving faith. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your, in anything by your opponents. They also were facing persecution. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. A walk worthy of the gospel in the face of persecution and opposition was a sign of their salvation. And it was a joy to not only believe, but to face persecution for the faith. And that's the message there. Paul had great love for the Thessalonians and concern for their persecution perseverance in the face of strong opposition and strong persecution. And they'd been under that persecution since the very beginning, 
since the first time they believed while Paul was still with them. They faced continual persecution until the day that he's writing to them now, the day that he's heard the report of what's going on. And so it weighed very heavily on him, so heavily that he sent Timothy and waited and worked all alone so that Timothy could exhort them in their faith. We saw that in verse 1 and 2. Now that he's been reassured of their faith and their walk, even in the face of continuing hostility, Paul is exceedingly grateful for the situation. He's so grateful that he asks the rhetorical question in verse 9, What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? He was so grateful and asked, how great a, you know, how can I say thank you to God? How can I rejoice to God for something so great? I, I don't have the words for it. His thanksgiving would never be sufficient for the awesome joy in the news that he had received, the good news he had received of their faith. What would be sufficient to thank God for having preserved them, this immature church, these little babes in Christ, standing against great persecution and opposition and still remaining faithful to God. Consider the exhortation of the author of Hebrews, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what he has promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. This is a, a message throughout the New Testament. If you want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And every place that Paul has taught, every place that he has preached, every place the gospel have gone from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, The people were being persecuted, both by the Jews, the godless Jews, I should say, the believing Jews had become Christians, but by the godless Jews and by the godless world and all of their godless religions. We need persecution or perseverance to endure the persecution, the kind of perseverance the Thessalonians demonstrated. It shows our faith and should be one of the sources of our confidence that our faith is true. Assurance of salvation is possible, and we get it from many sources, including standing firm in the face of persecution. And it's also, you'll note, a great joy to Paul to hear that they've stood firm. The assurance of their salvation was assurance to him as a minister that his labor was not in vain. And I think all ministers would feel that way, and all Bible teachers, that you know, the, the faith of those we work with is where our encouragement comes, part of our encouragement comes from. Seeing them transformed, seeing them live a godly life, seeing them persevere, seeing their faith makes it a joy to be in that situation. Uh, it's not always a joy, though. Hebrews 13, 17 He admonishes them, the author admonishes them to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In other words, the minister's job is uh, to admonish and exhort 
People need to know that sin is sin. And when they are sinning, they need to be called to repent of it. And that's their job. And they will give an account to God for how well they do that. And he said, let, but he goes on to say in the Hebrews 13, 17, let them do this with joy and not groaning. For that would be no advantage to you. Now let us consider our walk and the effect it has on those around us as well, especially on the leaders. Paul is rejoicing that their walk seemed to be one of faith. And that his ministry had not been in vain. Satan had not been able to make it in vain through his persecutions of the people. In verse 10, Paul continues to pray that they can meet face to face so he can supply what is lacking in their faith. Of course, Paul does give continually thanks for them and continually prays for them and exhorts them. And he, he says to Timothy, the young pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge, uh, the word there is exhort, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. It wasn't just a th- prayer of thanksgiving, but it was really an intercessory, intercessory prayer that Paul is praying here. He wanted to see them face to face so he could minister to them face to face. He could minister to them through a letter, but that would not be as effective and not as much of an encouragement to them. So he wants to meet them so that he can admonish them and stir them up and answer their questions and help them grow in their faith. And remember Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he wanted to be together with them, to worship them, so they could exhort one another in their faith and help each other to grow. Uh, He didn't want them to be alone. He didn't want them to feel abandoned or cut off. He wanted to be there so they could learn from him, learn the rest of his teaching, which had been cut short due to the interference of Satan and Satan's followers. Paul desired that they know the full counsel of God, that all of his revealed will would be made known to them, that they could be instructed in it, encouraged in it. It's very different, as we've said before, to learn online as to learn in person. You can't do discipling by reading books, by listening to sermons. Discipling is an interactive discussion between a teacher and somebody who's trying to learn so that they can really understand and really grow in their faith. Paul also prayed for the supply of what was lacking in their faith. Well, saving faith, you either have it or you don't. It's not something that grows. You've either put your faith in Christ or you have not. And that's not what we're talking about here. Also, the walking by faith, not by sight, you know, living this life in the hopes of eternity, which Paul is talking about in this book, is something we don't do perfectly in this life. 
We, we turn aside to the things of the world, the pride of life, the passions of the flesh. We're not perfect in that, and he wants to see them grow. He wants to fulfill fill them with what is lacking in their life, both of, of knowledge of what is right and of the will to do what is right. And, of course, the faith to obey God in all things is something we just don't have in our life. We're always growing in that. It's hard to give up the world, the flesh, and the devil and follow and obey God's revealed will for everything. And that's what he wants for them, that they would give up the flesh, give up the old life, live always for that day, as he calls it in First Thessalonians. Live for eternity with Christ. Store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Obey God in all things. Live our lives according to his revealed will, the word of God. This wasn't a casual prayer, but a fervent and continual prayer. You remember the parable Jesus gives about prayer in Luke chapter 18. It says, he told them a, a parable to the effect that they ought to pray and not lose heart. Pray always and not lose heart. It said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. But while he refused for a while, Afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. (laughs) He says, Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will give them justice Speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The idea here being if the godless man will give justice if you keep asking, even though he doesn't care about justice, won't God, who is perfect in his justice and holiness and goodness and truth, give justice to his people if they keep asking? We don't pray indifferently. We don't pray once and done. Oh, I ask God. Now it's his turn. It falls in his court. Sit back, wait, rest, relax. No. Pray without ceasing for these things. Pray for the persecution. Uh, In Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, and you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now that endurance and persecution goes on to the end. So death, if that should be where it leads. Paul here, though, has rejoiced in this message that he received from Timothy, the report he received from Timothy, and is now excited for them and longs to see them even more and prays that God would make that happen. And before he moves on to the instruction section of the letter, he offers a rather short but comprehensive prayer for them. 
And this is something Paul often does in his writing. He'll slip into a prayer or he'll slip into a a phrase of God uh, because his heart is moved by what's going on and what he's saying. And the prayer here is very short. Notice, though, that he prays to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're, we're told that we should pray in the name of Jesus, but he is asking both God and the Son and, and potentially the Holy Spirit to do the things that they do for his people. He's calling on both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ And he asks for a number of things. That God may direct things so that they're able to meet face to face. He says, may direct our way to you. That was the first thing he wanted, the thing that was most important in his heart, that I might come back to you and teach you some more. Because it isn't finished. And it isn't really easy to learn from a letter. I want to be there face to face and have this discussion with you teach you these things, hear your questions, answer them, see your life, encourage you. And so please, Lord, give me the opportunity to meet face to face with them. He prays for them that they would have an increase in brotherly love. Brotherly love is a very clear testimony of the faith being true, but that doesn't mean it's easy. We talked about that a lot in First John. It's not a, not a thing that, oh, yeah, I'm going to love all my brothers. Yeah, I love them all. As long as I don't have to be with them. <laughs> you know, once we're with them, it's banging heads and struggling, and their sin offends our sin, and our sin offends their sin, and we don't get along as well as we should. And so he's praying for an increase in brotherly love. As we could become more and more mature in our faith, we're more and more able to overlook the minor things. We're more and more able to show love to those who are unlovable. Because that is the model we've received, right? Who is the most unlovable? All right, right here. And who's the most lovable? You know, Christ. And has he loved me? Yes. And so I should be able to love my brother who's equally unlovable as I. And so he wants an increase in that love that it would grow mature, that it would be stronger, that it would be more capable. The struggles we have with sins sometimes alienate us from one another. But if we have enough brotherly love, we can encourage each other and admonish each other and exhort each other until the day comes that we might turn from our sin and live a more righteous life before God. So he prays for that increase in brotherly love And he prays for God to establish their hearts blameless in their holiness before God for that coming day. There will be a day of judgment. And that's one of the main topics of this book. The day of judgment is coming. It will come. God will repay everyone for everything they have done, whether it's good or bad. And he he wants them to be blameless in their hearts. Wants them to have better holiness, perfect holiness. It's unachievable in our life, perhaps, but it is the goal. And he wants God to minister to them and to bring them towards that. And note that it is 
for that day. We do not live for this world only. We do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. The things we see in this life are not everything. And so the goal is the judgment and preparing ourselves for it, being ready for it, and being approved for it. And the last thing I want to note about his prayer, it's three verses. Remember what Jesus said before the Lord's Prayer? When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. You know, God knows what we need. The encouragement to keep asking him is not to flood him with 10,000 words for our one prayer request, but that we pray for it over and over, that we keep it in our mind all the time. And I think that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about how he prays without ceasing for them. He prays continually for them. Every time he prays, he remembers them in his prayer. If he prayed you know, a five-page dissertation, for each church, each time he prayed, he would do nothing but pray. And Jesus says, we don't need to heap up empty phrases. Be to the point, just pray. But pray diligently, pray, pray earnestly, pray with passion for what you are calling on God to do. Pray in faith, not doubting, not wavering. Those are the things we are warned to do. So, He's had a very long introduction to this church because he was only with them for a little while. His teaching was incomplete. He had to leave them to persecution, and he was greatly stressed and worried for them. And he's written to encourage them of his love, of his faith, let them know that he has heard of their faith and is encouraged by it, and he will now move on to teach them some of the things that are important for them to know. And that's a great encouragement to them and an encouragement to us as well to think about if a report is brought back to those who supported the church, to all the ministers who came here and ministered during your time of distress, is it going to be a great encouragement to them? I think it is. Uh, I've spoken to those men at Presbyterian at Synod and they, they know what has gone on in the church since they were here last, and they have been encouraged. It's something to keep in mind, the joy you can bring to all of those pastors and to me by living our lives for Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the, the, the encouraging story of the Thessalonian faith how even as babes in Christ, they were fiercely persecuted and harassed, dragged into court, forced to pay fines, and yet they never abandoned their faith. They kept strong in it. They kept longing for Paul's return. <coughs> and we pray, Lord, that you give us hearts like that, that we might seek to live our lives faithfully, to be obedient to you in all things, to love each other, to love your people that all may know our testimony of faith is true and that you may be glorified and your people, especially, Lord, those who minister would be encouraged that their work was not in vain. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.